Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, I've really been wanting to do an episode with Mary Bowden for a really long time, and I'm very excited to be able to share this interview with all of you today. She has so much to share about her career and high-level performing, and she even talked a bit about the injury that she sustained that set her back quite a bit just when she was starting her solo career. Before we get into the episode, though, I'd like to talk about a few things. First, if you are someone who is interested in learning more about how to prepare for professional auditions, you might want to check out my new audition ebook called Efficient and Effective Audition Preparation. My goal with this book is to provide motivated musicians with the information they need to develop a better, more reliable process of preparation and ultimately to find the success that they seek on the audition circuit. The book covers the gold method, the three phases of performance preparation, deliberate practice, mental strategies for peak performance, as well as a discussion on how I write detailed programs that make sticking with your audition plan much easier. If you'd like more information, click the link in the description. Second, I would like to take just a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. A little while back, Houghton Horns was able to send me a Bach C-190C trumpet, a Shires 4S8 C trumpet, and taking those two horns along with my own Bach C trumpet, I compared and contrasted these three horns playing various excerpts, and I compiled it all into a YouTube video that is on Houghton Horns' YouTube channel right now. So if you're interested in hearing what these three horns sound like compared to each other, go ahead and click the link in the description for that video, and you can find it there. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm here with Mary Elizabeth Bowden, trumpet soloist, also professor of trumpet at Shenandoah University, and uh, the founder of Seraph Brass. And Mary is all over the place, performing everywhere, it seems like, and it's just, it's great to be able to to get you in one spot here, to be able to interview you, and to kind of pick your brain about how you've developed the career that you have and to learn how you manage the career that you have from an organizational, but also a trumpet playing perspective. I'm hoping my audience will get a lot out of this. I know I'm going to. So uh, before we get started, I really appreciate you uh, giving me a little bit of your uh, time. It's going to be awesome. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, let's start with your backstory, just however far back you want to go to kind of help us understand how you got started in music and then some of your career trajectory, educational trajectory from there. Sure. Well, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and my two older brothers decided to play horn and trombone through the band program. My parents are not musicians, so this was my oldest brother's fault for randomly wanting to play the trombone. And my 
parents found a brass teacher for them. His name is Tim Jones, and he plays horn. He's a computer program by computer programmer by day and went to school for music at Eastman for horn. And he was their teacher. So I knew that when I, I'm the youngest child and I wanted to be part of the brass family too. In fact, I wanted to play the horn so badly my brother would not let me. And uh, <laughs> so I decided to pick the trumpet. And Tim recommended to my parents that I start on cornet because it's easier to hold and also it has a nicer tone. And so that's my parents got me a professional model Yamaha cornet because my dad thought it would be a waste to start on a student model. I don't come from a lot of money, so this is just something that my parents really instilled in me is that if you're gonna do something, just go about it the right way to give yourself the best chance. So I still have that cornet and I love it. And uh, we had Tim coming to our house every Saturday and he would stay all day and give us each two hour lessons each, every week. And he would also take my brothers and I to hear the Chicago Symphony. And this is during uh, Bud Herseth's last years in the orchestra in the late 90s. Oh, wow. So this is how we were introduced as a family to classical music. Because of Tim, we were able to hear live concerts all around the Chicagoland area. He took us to all of these brass concerts and master classes. And so it's, it's really him that I have to thank for being a professional musician and falling in love with classical music. That first teacher just really um, giving us so much uh, to hear and getting so much of his, his time as well. So you are now a teacher. How does that impact your sort of viewpoint from, do you feel like that's part of your, I mean, I'm assuming most teachers feel this, but because your first teacher was so impactful and sort of helping usher you into a love of classical music, how does that affect your teaching? Do you try to take your students to live stuff or expose them to, the, you know, does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Definitely, I feel a huge responsibility uh, to care for my students and to expose them to as much music as I can while, you know, I don't have a whole entire Saturday, two hours to give them every single day. I give them as much time as I can uh, beyond just the, the hour lessons per week and trying to cultivate a community amongst the trumpet students that they can also care for each other and motivate each other in that way. Uh, I think just having that community is so important. And with me, it was my two older brothers uh, who tortured me a lot in a good way when I was practicing. And uh, because being two and three years older, they were naturally better. So I definitely was teased a lot and that made me practice a lot more because I was trying to always reach their level. And uh, when I got a little bit older in junior high, uh, Tim had me switch to a trumpet teacher and he really wanted me to also study with a female trumpet player. So he found a teacher for me, uh, Carrie Lee. Uh, I don't know if you know them in Chicago. She's also married to a trumpet player, Matt Lee. And so she was my teacher oh. in my, my teenage years. And she was very formative for me just to have a, a really strong female role model and I also have a strange schooling experience. I dropped out of eighth grade and went directly into community college because my brothers did that in high school and they left early and they went into this early leavers program. And I thought school was a waste of time and wanted to get things done in a semester rather than a whole year. That was very appealing for me because I already knew that I wanted to play trumpet for a living. So that would give me 
not only more time to practice, but also time to work a job so I could save money to buy a piccolo trumpet. So it was, uh, I was already kind of thinking efficiently in that way. And, uh, and, and then I had more time to go to concerts and just do more things that I wanted to do. And from there, I had a, a gap year in between getting my associate's degree and going to the Curtis Institute of Music. And during that gap year, I was, I did a second year in Chicago Youth Symphony. And uh, I also worked full-time at a furniture company doing customer service work, which looking back on it, gave me a lot of confidence and skills just to be able to problem solve and talk with people and uh, not be stuck inside of the music bubble, but realize that there's many things outside of life and skills that you have to develop. And then I feel like that was a really great setup for me then to go to Curtis and, and focus primarily on the trumpet. Yeah. I love that. What you just said sort of about this extra musical thing has helped you possibly start to build skills that you're clearly in need of now, you know, your ability to communicate with people and come to come to solutions and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's so many skills I've learned from some of the extracurricular activities that have dramatically influenced my own trumpet playing. And it's just funny because if somebody would have said, if you learn how to like make a really nice video, you're going to be a better trumpet player. I'd have been like, that's crazy. Like that connection doesn't seem like it would make sense. But now that I've sort of been through it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, were you, so were you were pretty serious about the trumpet from the very be from the beginning then, or was there like sort of a, I started and I enjoyed it and then sort of an event happened and then I started to, to take it more seriously. I think I knew pretty early on. I remember doing uh, making a career poster in sixth grade in my second year of playing. And I drew a picture of myself with a cat and a trumpet. So I thought I was going to be a vet and then play in an orchestra at night or some something crazy. So uh, it's funny now because I am a cat person. I have two cats and you know, I realize that trumpet's enough. I, I, I'm not sure why I decided so early. I think I was just very determined and focused and was already a really great practicer from day one. And I, I think that has to do with um, dance. I did dance from age three to 11, um, ballet lessons every week and tap dance. And I was very bad at it. And I had to practice a lot to not embarrass myself in the dance recitals. Mm. And uh, and then trumpet came much more naturally than dancing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I just assumed that I would just need to practice a lot to, to get really, to, to be competent. And I think the, the skills, the, the, the discipline I had for dance and how hard I had to work to even be acceptable on the stage and not just ruin the show. I, that, I think that translated really well over to, to the trumpet. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to sort of take a departure from the, the career path here and sort of sit on this idea because in athletics and, you know, something physical like dance, you hear this idea of, you know, working harder than everybody else can sometimes mean you're just literally doing more, right? You're, you're doing more hours or something like that. But I don't think that a hundred percent translates on the trumpet, you know, working harder than somebody else means I'm going to practice four hours instead of three or five instead of four. And so obviously the way you practice, how smart, the efficiency you use matters. Um, you've probably had a varying amount of time frames in your life with which you could practice. So I'd love your take on 
if you were to say, or if someone was like, well, I want to work harder, right? Like I'm doing X amount and I want to work harder so that I can give myself a better chance. What would you, how would you interpret that? What does it mean to work harder to get a better result as opposed, you know, like I said, in athletics, usually that just means, oh, I'll add another training session or, you know, I'll do this or that. But what does that mean? What do you think that means for trumpet? Number one thing for me is slow practice and starting the day off with finding my sound, no matter how long it takes. If there's some gravel in the tone or I don't have the center of, of the tone, I'm not going to start practicing my concerto. I will work on sound as long as it takes uh, to get there. And I don't start working on anything serious until I have, I feel like my fundamentals are in place for the day. And uh, that some days that might mean that I'm doing Clark's most of the day or lip bends for 40 minutes. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm really, uh, that's been something from day one that I've been sort of obsessed with. Uh, I remember the first day I got my cornet, I played long tones for as long as I could because I wanted one note to sound good. I wasn't trying to play all the fast notes or trying to play as high and loud as possible. It was just getting that one note to sound pretty good on day one was the first goal. And I feel like that's really stuck with me over the years and, uh, and the slow practice. I make myself start at a slow tempo, tempo and then gradually build. And then throughout that, there's also creative practice techniques and my husband, Dave Dash, also says that I am really great at stopping and resting when I need to rest. The rest is so important within that. And sometimes I walk by practice rooms with students and I just hear them repeating the same mistake over and over again. And, and I know they feel like they're working hard, but they're just ingraining the mistake and not letting themselves rest or do some uh, mental work like visual, visualization and uh, and I'm really good at when it when it feels bad or sounding bad, put it down, imagine it. And so that's something that's really natural for me is knowing when to stop and rest. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I have a lot of the same. I've come to a lot of the same conclusions because I have to be more efficient with my time. And so I end up prioritizing trying to get the sound in my head to come out of my bell at in the most basic way possible, kind of what you're describing, and then worrying about how do I add those layers of difficulty. Um, so, you, but it sounds like almost from the beginning, I was going to ask if there's a teacher that kind of instilled that. But if you're describing from day one, you were trying to get that one sound to be right. Um, it to me, this is like not the way most people view it. You know, I feel like most people view getting better on the trumpet as I'm going to assign or I'm going to work on this thing that's really, really, really hard. And the pursuit of the thing that's hard is what will make me better. But sometimes I wonder if that's not the it's like sort of a backwards way as opposed to what you're describing, which is I'm going to get myself set up in a healthy manner and then gradually begin to ask myself to do harder and harder things from that place. Do I, does that would that be an accurate way of describing what you were talking about? I think so. And also um, having repetitions that are also done in a way that's going to reinforce a, a great performance. Uh, a memory that I don't quite remember, but that Tim was telling me about was that, uh, you know, I started with the Sigmund Herring books. I don't know if you know those. Um, mm -hmm. And he finally discovered after a few months of teaching me that the way that I would practice, you know, I would learn 
the little etudes that he would assign. And he asked me how I was practicing. And I told him I would start at the beginning of the book each day and play through it slowly, even though I had already played those exercises for him in previous weeks. And so I was not only building great endurance, but also just reinforcing great habits. I think that was, you know, probably a control freak side of me wanting to do that. <laughs> and uh, it made me laugh because it, it doesn't surprise me so much. Uh, but uh, it's that patience I had from the very beginning. And of course, being in college and stuff, you get frazzled and bad habits creep in. And then you have to remind yourself to take a step back and ask yourself how you're practicing something. You know, I, I remember I had to learn the Lieberman concerto with one month notice. And I decided that I wasn't going to rush the process, even though I only had four weeks. And I remember starting it at half tempo and going through it very slowly and methodically, and then identifying the hardest parts of the piece and doing those slowly, doing patterns similar to the violin method, the Galamian method, and listening to um, the recording that I had of Phil Smith doing it, listening to that on repeat when I was running or exercising. And yeah. uh, that was one of my most confident feeling performances because I was so patient with just inching up the metronome a little bit each day rather than, uh, you know, so many of my students now have the urge to want to test things and run them at, you know, oh, let's see where I'm at and let's run it at the speed that it's supposed to be today. And let's do that every day and fail and then go back and play it slow. I don't, I think that is not, definitely not the way to work things. It's like putting your toe in the water to see if it's too cold to jump in. Uh, and the slow practice and just the gradual being really methodical about that and trusting the process and not rushing that process, I think is really important because I think it's really easy on the trumpet to solidify a mistake in your mind, you might have worked it out, but if you've done 50 repetitions with the mistake under pressure, your body's going to do what it's done the most in the practice room. I gosh, this is, this is awesome. I love this. Like, I totally agree. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is, you know, as when you learn to trust a process and you've done it enough times, you've sort of seen that there are some problems that you actually don't really have to actively fix that literally just doing a process, it'll work itself out over it. And then there are some issues that don't work itself out. And so you sort of have to figure out what's the process I'm going to follow, commit yourself to it and see what happens. But once you kind of understand, oh, I missed these notes, or I, I kind of missed this pattern. But I know if I just continue on with the process, it's going to be fine and I'll be able to nail it. So I'm going to spend my efforts over here where that's these things. Maybe it's an intonation thing or you don't understand a rhythm or you don't un understand how to approach an interval or something, right? Like those things makes my practice like a hundred times more efficient because I, it's like not even all problems in my or issues in my playing are created equal, so to speak. And so it kind of what you're talking about reminds me of that thing I've been thinking about recently and how to communicate that to people that like it's worth trying to find a process because not only do you trust the process, but it actually drives that much more efficiency for that reason, too. Do you have any examples of that recently where you were where you were able to say, I got to learn this piece really quickly? There's all these issues. Some of them I'll worry about and some of them I'll just like, you know, hope that the, the process takes care of it. Do you have any examples of anything like that? 
Definitely. Uh, I recently commissioned a new concerto by Vivian Fung, and mm -hmm. I've been performing it this past year, and it is one of the most difficult pieces that I've played in public. And now it's feeling like it's part of my my body. Um, and it's finally like getting ingrained. I'm finally memorizing it, and it's feeling easier and easier every time I perform it. And within a busy tour schedule, I had to perform it here at Shenandoah Conservatory with the orchestra. And leading up to that, I just had a relentless schedule. I had a month-long tour with a string quartet where we had 27 concerts in a month. And then I had Serif Brass right after that. It was just nonstop playing. And so I was in my head thinking, okay, I have this, I have Vivian's concerto coming up again. I've played it, but I need to start practicing it. And so what I would do on breaks on tour, when I felt like I had face to give, I started at the beginning and I started at half tempo two weeks out. And at, I, would, I would save it for usually the end of the day after a concert, when you can have, when you can practice because you can go to sleep after that. And I would make sure not to push it too much, but resting as much as I needed while doing the slow practice. And I slowly bumped up the metronome marking each day that I practiced it for the two weeks leading up. And then that week of the rehearsals and the performance just felt super easy. And so I was really glad that I didn't do the thing that we do sometimes where we try to test and run it as is, because I thought to myself, well, I just performed this in January. It's April. Maybe I don't need to do the slow practice. That's the little voice in my brain told me. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going back to half tempo. And I did not let myself do any testing. It was just, I went back through the methodical way. It just went faster because I have performed it before. It wasn't like I needed to do that for a month. I could easily do that with a week and a half every day inching the metronome up. And then it felt really healthy. And, um, you know, cause there's a lot of muscle memory built in already since I've recorded the piece and performed it a few times already. Yeah. Would you, so would you say that you've obviously at this stage, you've gone through this process of learning something half tempo. And I kind of want to dive into what you what you mean when you say some creative practice techniques, because I'm sure that's a huge part of it too. It's not just ramping up the metronome. Um, but before we do that, I'm curious, you've gone through this process a whole bunch of times. And so you can do that. You can say, okay, I'm going to start at half tempo two weeks out of a piece that I've played, but I need to refresh myself on. Uh, and, and you will trust that process. But for somebody else who might not have gone through this process nearly as many times, uh, I'm curious, like, to do that on something like an audition or a huge performance would probably cause way too much anxiety of like, is this going to work? I need to test. So how does somebody sort of practice learning to trust a process without there being like a huge payoff? Or do you just need to say like, I'll just go for it and be willing to have possibly it not go the way I want to so I can learn how to make the process better? What's your take on that? I think if someone hasn't had success that they're looking for in a performance or audition, then it's, it's time to make the change and, uh, and not do the testing because if it's not working, there has to be a change. And, um, whether it's addressing, you know, going through coaching, working with a coach or going through the Don Green book, um, it's just always good to keep experimenting and trying and see what resonates with you as an individual. 
And I think that through time, or I mean, I'm always trying new things before for performances. So every performance I have, I don't feel like I have figured out my method. I'm still experimenting. I'm still trying new things. I just ordered Don Green's new book, Train Your Own Hero. And so I'm still addressing performance anxiety and, um, and also trying to be a more efficient player and always trying to improve each performance and, uh, it's a never ending process. And that's, I think that's why I love it because it's a constant growth mindset. And I feel like I'm going to be 70 and I'm still going to be wanting to be better each day and trying to fine tune things and trying to be a more exciting performer. And it, I think that, that, that journey just is never ending. Yeah. I love that mindset, the growth mindset, you know, um, I've, I just read that book, um, back in December and I had sort of understood the concepts behind it, but just reading the book mindset by Carol Dweck, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's just like, it's kind of transformative, you know, to realize that there's actual language around this and it's actually a real thing. The way you sort of frame the learning or the experiences you have, um, you, when you're doing the process, I imagine that you have certain things. I don't know how to ask this question in a very eloquent way, but you have certain things that help you know that you're on the right track, right? You're thinking maybe it's healthy trumpet playing, or maybe it's you sort of know, okay, about this stage, it should feel about like this, about this stage. But for someone who doesn't, you know, if they're doing some of that experimenting and they don't know what it's supposed to feel like or if they're on the right track, are there sort of some generalities that you, like if it was one of your students and they were like, all right, I'm going to trust this process. I have no idea what's going to happen. As, are there some generalities that you would try to share with them to help them know that like they're on the right track versus they're trusting this process, but it's headed in a direction that's not going to be beneficial for them because they just don't know how to interpret what they're feeling. Is there a way that you would encourage them about this is what on track feels like? How would you, how would you handle that? Well, I definitely have them start a practice journal if they haven't already mm -hmm. and get the uh, a charts and map out what they're practicing and um, also write out their strengths and weaknesses. And um, with iPads now, it's it's so easy to write in the tempo where you're at um, on, I'm on the column. So I do I write the date and the tempo and each section will be kind of in a different level of, of where I'm at. And I put stars and colored color code things of what needs to be improved. And if I have a bunch of material coming up all at the same time, then I will my, myself, I'll take out the chart and write it all out so I can just see clearly what's coming up and what needs the most work. And so I can start integrating everything in so I don't feel completely overwhelmed. And so I think that uh, st students definitely need to do the practice journal and make a practice chart and start writing things down and documenting what they're doing in their practice session so they can get a clear idea of like, why did today go so badly? Okay, what was I doing leading up to this? What was my sleep like? What was I eating? And, you know, especially if a student's really looking for answers, just documenting it and looking back, I think is the best way to see what's happening. Yeah, I'm trying to get feedback like this from some people that I'm working with sort of low key saying, can you just write down every feeling that you have while you're, like at the end of the day, just write today was good today was bad, or I feel good about this process, or I don't feel good about this process. Because, you know, I kind of want to know, 
what the trajectory is for people. You know, when you get to the end, hopefully you're going to say, all right, like it worked, but there's this whole like sort of up and down roller coaster in the middle of all of that. Right. Sometimes at least. And it's important to know that not every, I think not every day has to feel incredible for you to be able to reach the particular outcome you're looking for. And I'm curious, I'm imagine. I mean, it's like, this is such a dumb question because I know the answer to it, but I'm sure people will appreciate hearing it. Do you have bad days, you know, where you're like, okay, like, I'm not sure if this is actually, if it's based on today, I don't know if this is going to pan out or like my trumpet playing is not going well today and I can't get the work I need in on it. So now I'm behind in my learning process. Does that make sense? Like, does that happen to you? How do you deal with that? How do you mitigate that and continue moving forward sort of feeling like you're still going to get there? I would say over the past 10 years, I have completely gotten over thinking about how it feels. Like mm. I tell myself, I don't care. It doesn't matter how it feels. That doesn't mean that I can't do my job or sound great. So every day can feel bad, um, but it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. And I think that is something I remember in my early twenties, obsessing about how it feels or oh, my are my chops puffy today? Um, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can play. And now I, I just, I just don't care after overcoming getting hit in the face twice and dealing with scar tissue and things like that. And also the amount of traveling that I do with playing solos and serif brass and managing the teaching position, I'm constantly on the road. And so not getting sleep or traveling has made me a lot stronger with, as far as, you know, external factors making you feel good or bad. I feel bad most of the time, I would say, <laughs> but it doesn't, I don't, I just, I guess I just don't care because I know that it's part of uh, being a trumpet player and not reacting to how it feels is, is really important. I remember in undergrad with studying with Dave Bilger, I heard him playing and I automatically assumed that meant he felt great. I was like, how do your chops feel great all the time? And he looked <laughs> at me and I remember him laughing and like shaking his head. He was like, what do you mean it feels great? <laughs> yeah. And that didn't really make sense to me until I got a little bit older. Um, so I, I, you know, I can start off a day and it feels terrible, but I'm not going to make a judgment on myself. I'm just going to keep, maybe I need a little bit more of a warm up, and then usually it's fine. I can, I can do my job and usually every day is pretty consistent um, because I'm not reacting to the feel of things. Yeah, I totally it's just like a cool perspective. And I one that I agree with, especially, you know, with my orchestral job, like it just doesn't matter how I feel either. Like all of my colleagues need me to at least try to sound the same or as close to the same. So they know what to expect from day to day. And if one day I get a good warm up and one day I don't or one day, whatever, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. And all of a sudden I can't sound good. It's like, well, it's a quote wasted rehearsal or something, right? So it's a similar thing. I just try to play the trumpet the same way each time and assume if I'm putting the same thing into the trumpet, I'm going to get the same thing out of the trumpet. That's at least where I'm kind of, I've landed right now. And I would say you're, you probably would agree with this also, just the general progression of getting better and more efficient over time has reduced the amount of bad days as well. Would you agree with that? Definitely. And, uh, I really started digging into fundamentals after I was injured. In my 20s, I was the type of player that would just pick up the trumpet and I'm going to play Tomasi Concerto. You know, I just was, <laughs> I, I didn't really warm up very much and wasn't interested in practicing fundamentals so much. 
And then after getting hit in the face, that is when I dove into fundamentals. And now it's just, it's, I'm real, you know, in a way, maybe getting hit in the face was a blessing in disguise because I'm definitely way smarter and stronger than I was in my twenties. And, um, if I'm touring, I'm making sure that I am playing my little Clarks that I like to practice slurred and double tongued and just making sure that I'm feeling really healthy about the playing and squeezing it in when I can. And that has really helped with endurance and making it through tour days. And, and so if you have a day where you're not able to practice because a flight is delayed or you get stuck in traffic and you can't warm up, then it doesn't affect me as badly because I have built such great habits. So I can get away with some days of not warming up or not having ideal practice schedule because most of the days I'm doing what I need to do, if that makes sense. Sure. Of course it does. Um, we should, we should talk about this, uh, getting hit in the face and this injury you sustained. And, um, I, I, I mean, I had heard some stories, you know, cause word can travel fast in the music world, but, um, obviously, um, some people may know this, some people may not, but Mary and I competed in the 2012 Elzer Smith competition. And that was like shortly after the injury. So the fact that you were even there and you were able to sound the way you were able to sound is kind of, um, it's, it's just incredible testament to obviously your ability to um, know what you want to sound like and know the sound you want to create. Um, but I know that it, it was certainly not something that was helping you. So if you kind of want to take us to the beginning of it and kind of where things started, because if I'm not wrong, there were, there were two separate incidents that happened shortly after one another. Um, and then, yeah, let's just kind of talk about this because to be able to say it might be a blessing in disguise. I'm sure that's a, I'm looking back and thinking that I'm sure you didn't think that at the time. <laughs> so yeah, let's unpack this. I'm, I'm sure people will be interested to hear about it. Definitely. And it's, it's really wrapped into my path for my, my, my career as well. At the time, uh, you know, I, when I went to Curtis and Yale, I was very focused on having just an orchestral career because I thought that was the only way that I could make a living because I had to take care of myself and pay my own bills. And I wanted to make sure that I could eat and pay rent. And so I thought, well, I better win an orchestra job. Being a soloist isn't possible. And, you know, I, in my, I was in the Richmond symphony and, and teaching at BCU and freelancing right out of grad school and taking a lot of auditions and things like that. And it was through doing, um, this artistic admin job at the Richmond symphony that I started to see what soloists were doing, mostly singers, because part of my job was helping with the communications with management and soloists. And I thought to myself, this is what I wanted to do when I, before I went to Curtis and was sort of talked out of it, like, Oh, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. Trumpet players can't be soloists. And I started thinking like, wow, I could, maybe I should try or maybe I, and at the time I was like, I'm too old. I was 27. And I was like, I'm, I'm so old. <laughs> and, but part of me really thought like, well, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not, wasn't super compelling for me to be playing third and fourth trumpet on random freelance gigs and driving everywhere. I just wasn't, didn't feel really artistically fulfilled. And, um, and so I, on a whim, I went to the BAMP center to study with Jens Lindemann. And that experience completely changed my life. I feel like he was like a fortune teller. He was like, you can be a soloist and you're going to start your own groups. I can just see it. And I, was, I had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, he really opened up 
the door for me to believe in myself that I could make this happen. And I knew that I had to make a lot of changes in my playing because I hadn't played a solo recital since graduating from Yale. So I had to figure mm. out how do I program a recital? What do I need to improve in my playing? How do I program a recital? What concertos do I want to play? It was just, I had the ability, but it wasn't really cultivated. You know, when I auditioned at Curtis, I played Tomasi concerto and I didn't even know that it was hard. I just played it and then... So I felt like there was like a lot of untapped potential um, during those those years at school. And now that I was trying to dig out of myself at age 27. So that journey started and then I was slowly getting traction through sharing videos and playing with community groups, building confidence and studying with a lot of people and getting torn apart and just trying to just focus on the improvement aspect of that. And then at age 30, it was my last chance to try competitions. I had never done them before. The only competition I did was the Women's Brass Conference competition. And uh, and so I just randomly made a tape for Ellsworth Smith. Oh, here's my last chance to try this and then advanced. And so that summer I turned on all work and I just practiced. I changed mouthpieces, completely changed my setup and um, just worked really hard on the list because I had never done a big competition in my life. and. I went to the BAMP Center to study with Jens again. And the first week of beginning to run the repertoire, um, I lifted up a music stand and it popped up and cut my lip. Not like on the embouchure, but like right above. And it cut my lip and it was bleeding. Every It looked it looked way worse than it was. I remember Jens' face turned white. He was like, and I thought my <laughs> career was over because it looked much worse than it was. It didn't cut the muscle. I just needed a stitch. And I took a week off and then started playing again and it got better. But I... I was disappointed because I wanted to use my time at the BAM Center to run what I had worked on with Jens. And that felt like that opportunity was taken from me um, because of that, that first accident. And it was very, very sad and traumatic. I sat in the cafe and cried a lot. And then I would just listen to the music over and over again because I knew that once I felt ready, I was going to start practicing again. And, um, and then I started running the list for Jens and Ryan Anthony and it was going better. And then I flew back to Santa Fe to visit Dave, my husband, and I ran part of the list for him that morning. You know, I had done all the slow work and I was, I hired a pianist to work with me to be really prepared. And I remember Dave was like, wow, you're back. This is the best you've ever sounded in your life. Like, I'm so proud of you, yada, yada. And later that night, I was walking to my car late at night in the opera parking lot. And um, there were some people in the parking lot drinking and someone threw a Frisbee. And I don't play Frisbee. And I was just talk I stopped and talked to a couple friends on the way to my car and the Frisbee bounced off my friend's head and hit me right in the lip, right underneath um, in the front. And I knew it was bad the minute it hit. And Dave said he saw it happen in slow motion and was like, no. And it, it was too late. And I, it swelled up like a big duck bill. It looked terrible. And um, I just knew it was like game over. <laughs> It was just, it was, yeah. it, I just knew in my gut that it was like, but I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, do I have a magnet in my face or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such horrible luck. Yeah. And so I was like icing the crap out of it, but I knew it, it was just bad. It was black and blue on the inside. It really hit in a, in a way that was not good. And I called so many people for advice. And the advice that I was given was rest. Don't rush it. Do not do the competition. Sorry, it's not gonna the cards aren't in it for you and uh I didn't listen unfortunately and uh 
I was stubborn. And I think like a week and a half out, I was like, I was doing the, the student thing. I was testing. Oh, will it work today? Can I, even though it's still black and blue, can I try to play? And I would test it. And I did that leading up to Ellsworth and I went and played. And I, I don't know, that first round, it was, I remember it was, it was hard stuff. It was Hanukkah and Trada and. That new piece. Yeah. I, Do you remember yes. around the world or spinning around the yep. world or something? Yep. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of fake. Loved that piece. <laughs> and I was, you know, <coughs> I, I, I don't, I think that first round, it did not, obviously did not go well for me. And for some reason in the second round, I was able to play Haydn and Hertel really well, which was very strange. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember that night after that, that first day of playing, which was a lot of playing, um, I had like these twinges, these like pangs of pain in my lip, sharp pains. And so, no, I didn't deserve to advance. And I'm glad I didn't because it was my body telling me like, what, what are you doing? Like, why? <laughs> It was still very bruised. I was like, why am I doing this? Like, There's no way I'm going to win on this. There's just, it was, but I just, it was, I was so sad. It was just really, it, it felt like, wow, I'm, I've been trying for three years to try to get this solo career started. I'm so late in the game already. And now this is happening to me. Like this is like so disappointing. And then on top of that, I had an audition for Concert Artists Guild that I had advanced at. And um, that live round was October. And I was still too injured there. I went as well. And I remember feeling my chops felt very thin. I was still having sharp pains and I still went and played. It was, it was so dumb, you know, and I was really sad. And at the same time, I, I reached out to a lot of managers and I had coffee with a lot of managers and uh, to try to convince them to put me on their roster. And one manager took me on. I didn't tell him about the injury and he signed me. And that was my, first manager that helped me launch my solo career. And, um, and at the time I also invested in really high quality photos that cost more than, uh, I had ever spent on photos. And I went to someone who I loved her work and she's still a photographer that I work with to this day. And I remember at the time, my husband thought it was a little ridiculous, the amount of money that I was spending on that. And I had saved for it. And but he was like, well, just, she's so sad from getting hit in the face twice. <laughs> but now he's like, wow, that was really smart. That was really smart because the market's so saturated. Not only do you have to sound amazing, it's you're, there's just so many people out there, as you know. And the market with social media booming, it's getting more and more saturated. So it's, you know, and I know presenters, you know, they, they want to be able to market their artists easily and have photos that print nicely and... And the playing has to be awesome too. So I knew I had confidence in myself that I would figure out how to play well. And I did. And I relearned how to play, built things from the ground up after finally resting and uh, through cranial sacral therapy um, and doing this uh, procedure called, not a procedure, but like it's kind of like a massage. Uh, it was called uh, myofacial release. That mm -hmm. was a game changer for me. I remember um, Matt Sonnenborn, uh, principal trumpet of Naples. We were in Naples at the time. And he told me that I think his son had headbutted him like in his early years. And so he went to this lady in Naples who does cranial sacral therapy and she really helped his face recover. So he recommended that I see her. And so I was seeing her once a month and she really helped release the tension in my face that I had developed through the scar. And to this day, I still do mis massage on the scar and ice and heat. And I know how to take care of myself and, um, through having to relearn how to play, 
my my muscles had to finally work. I think before the injury, I was just really just playing from the center lip and I was just kind of a natural player, but you know, that's not going to last long when you get older. And so I finally, all of a sudden was like, Oh, that's what my friends were talking about when they meant what the other corner, they were feeling their corners. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, your corners, whatever you want to call it, it's like the muscles here, you know? And I was like, Oh, I feel those now. Oh, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Interesting. And then, um, the lessons that I had taken with Hogan Hardenberger started to make sense. He, um, I remember in a master class, you know, he, he had me put my fist in his stomach and then he played a high note and it went out. And I remember being really confused by that. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like what is happening? I don't understand. Cause my basically I just picked up the trumpet and noodle, but I, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. And, uh, so that clicked in and I started experimenting with that and my, especially in my piccolo playing. And then my, my range just jumped up a third and I was finally able to to work up the Brandenburg Concerto. So a lot of interesting things happened in the year after the injury. And uh, I just had to figure things out and finally do fundamentals and experiments and be a smarter practicer. And uh, so 10 years later now, here I am. And it's just, it's just really interesting to look back because it was a very sad time, but I was also very persistent. I didn't give up. I just just threw myself in even more um, because I was very angry and determined. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that can be a powerful motivator for sure. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'll just, you know, I I, kind of want to say some things just to you because, you know, I've watched your, you know, many of us have watched your career, you know, over time. And I remember when you first started posting pictures and videos, like I didn't get it. And I was like, why is she doing this? Like, why does she, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't understand what you were doing because I just thought people, like people just played in orchestras and like, they just like somebody else markets. I'm like, I didn't get that orchestras have a marketing department and they're maybe good or maybe not good. But if you are on your own, like you, you need a way to, like you said, to be able to, you know, have a great presence and stuff. So I just didn't get it. And I don't, I don't really want to get into it, but I even feel like I was critical in ways because of my non understanding of what was going on, you know? And so now I see it and I was like, Oh my gosh, she was just so far ahead of the curve. None of us could really figure out like that. This is actually something that many of us are going to have to be thinking about someday, you know? And she, she just, you just like persistently moved forward. I'm and and I just, I'm impressed and inspired by it. Now, all these years later, I can say that I wish I could have said it sooner i just was so blinded by my own i don't know if this makes sense but my own like preconception of what a career as a trumpet player had to be i couldn't really understand and like see other ways of doing it if that made sense so it's just impressive and it's awesome and to know you were going through all of that at the same time and that you were like i'm just gonna figure this out like i i think it's incredible so I don't know. I don't often sort of speak like that on the podcast. So hopefully it's not too sherry and hopefully it came across in the way that I hoped it would. No, it completely makes sense. And I was feeling that I was getting comments from friends on Facebook. Like some, I remember a a good friend of mine wrote why underneath one of my headshots. And I was like, I'm not just doing this for vanity. (laughs) Like, are you, are you kidding? You know what I mean? Like I knew what I wanted to accomplish and I knew that I wasn't going to get any free handouts. I wasn't going to wait I was too old to win a competition um, and I wasn't going to wait for someone to do all the work for me. After working that admin job at Richmond Symphony, I I know what the orchestras are looking for to hire soloists. And so 
that job is really what trained me for like, oh, I know what materials I need now. And I don't want an awkward headshot. I want an, a headshot that <laughs> speaks to who I am as an artist. And then I knew that I wanted video because guess what? I was too old to win a competition and I want people to listen to me play. So I started being brave and posting videos on YouTube was the first platform. And uh, I was like, well, if, if, if people look at my photo and say, why does she have photos? She can't play. Well, go, go on YouTube, go listen to my albums. Like there's like so many places that I post my playing so people can hear and decide for themselves if they like what I'm saying artistically as well. So I think it's all, I was experimenting and I still am experimenting with social media and it's a constant game. And, uh, it's, it's been, a, it's a definitely a really interesting world because now everyone has access to share. And, um, I know it can feel overwhelming because we're just constantly bombarded by other people's content. And, uh, so it's just been interesting to see the world change in that way because yeah, 10 years ago, people weren't really doing this as much. And, um, the whole music video thing was not really a thing. So I know those first videos that I had my friend make for me, people thought those were strange. Why are you making music videos? Like, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm like, well, because it's, it's not necessarily for, um, my fellow trumpet players, it's, it's for people who don't listen to classical music and it draws them into a story. I was trying to think of like, how can I draw in a much larger audience? How can I get people who haven't listened to the trumpet before as a solo instrument really enjoy it? And so I do have a fan base that loves the videos that I had made and it brought them in. And then now they, it brought them into more classical music concerts. You know, I still do, I still do a little bit of orchestral work because that was like my upbringing. I still love to play in orchestra. And um, a few seasons back, I did a couple years um, with Des Moines Opera playing second trumpet just for fun. I mean, I took that audition just for fun when I was doing solo stuff. And then I think the solo stuff really helped my orchestral playing. And so I did that mm. for a couple seasons. And I remember and this older gentleman came up to me after a concert. I was playing second trumpet in the opera, you know, and he was like, I'm here because of you, because I, I follow your work. And I saw that you were playing with the opera. And now I love Des Moines Opera. And now he's like a devoted Des Moines opera fan. <laughs> it's just like, That's you never so know cool. how you're going to bring in a new audiences. And uh, yeah. so it's just been fascinating to see how we can really make an impact as artists. And, uh, and then how do you, how do you get work as a soloist? I'm still thinking of new ways of how, how do I keep getting concertos with better orchestras? How do I keep making a name for myself when I don't have things handed to me? I have to work really hard for every concert that I get. I don't have management anymore. Um, I decided to go on my own and use assistants to help me. You know, I, I don't get anything handed to me. It's, it's always, um, constant networking and thinking of new project ideas like the Vivian Fung concerto. And now I'm commissioning a few more concertos by composers and recording an album of that with an orchestra and the process, like a never ending process of just finding funding, finding people to believe in the project. And I'm hoping to break down the barrier of being able to get a big break in my forties as a soloist and as a female soloist, you know, we, it doesn't always have to be the prodigy who's, you know, 15 years old or and anybody can keep improving and becoming a, a, a like, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be an even stronger player age 50. There's going to be a lot of other things. Who knows where I'll be at that age with the experiences and the commissions and things like that. I think it's just, that's what I love about music is like this never ending journey. And a lot of um, 
hopefully a lot of barriers barriers will be broken down with how we think about like who can be a soloist and things like that. Yeah, and one thing I really, really respect about what you're just talking about is that you're out, you're doing it. You know what I mean? You're, it's like you're, I, I, I have a desire for this thing, and I'm gonna work very hard, and learn and figure things out, and I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna do it. And I just think, you know, we can see many of us follow again your uh, social things on social media, so we can see all the different. Whether it's with, uh, you know, with it's on your own or with Sarah for that Cassia ensemble you play with, that string group. Is that how you say it? Cassia? Cassia. Close. Cassia, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I've only seen it in print. And it's like, wow, she has all these opportunities. Like, it must be so nice. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like now that you've reached this thing where it seems like things are happening very regularly, which, you know, 27 dates in 30 days is pretty regular. <laughs> um, it's like almost as if many of us could do that thing that happens to people where it's almost we treat it as if it's some sort of overnight success, right? Instead of like, no, I've been doing this for like 10 years. And I've been it is just it's actually for me that much more inspiring to know that, yeah, if you just keep getting a little bit better and keep learning, like, this can happen, this kind of career can happen. And um, I'm curious for your for your take on a scarcity versus, um, well, what's the, I can't remember the opposite of scarcity mindset. You know, scarcity is like, if someone else gets it, there's less for me versus, I guess, plenty would be the other, where it's like there's plenty of room for people who do what they do well. Like, um, what's your take? I mean, you're talking about trying to inspire and break down barriers. So it sounds like you kind of have a mindset where you would love it if uh, maybe more people were involved in trying to pursue this kind of thing. Do I Do I have that right? Definitely. And I think... You know, especially younger students, I can't imagine being in the Instagram world at age 18 and you see all these fantastic players posting great video and it must, they must feel so much pressure. You know, I feel it too sometimes thinking like, wow, I wish I could play with better orchestras more internationally, this and that. We always want more. And um, I'm aware of that. That's like human nature to kind of start thinking that way. But I think if uh, just remember that everyone is working hard and, and and there is room for everyone. the world is such a big place and um there is there's so much room for for different projects and ideas and uh like this tour that i just did with the casilla ensemble um that i think that whole process was about four years um i pitched the idea to this tour presenter that i worked with through serif and i remember he was like no that's that's not gonna sell string quartet and trumpet, no way. And I had made a special trip to New York to go have lunch with him at APAP. And he told me flat out, no. And I was like, are you sure? What could convince you? And he's like, I just, I don't know, I don't know. So I was like, mm, I don't think that's a no. In my mind, I was like, that's not a no. <laughs> the fact that he was willing to have lunch with me over it was, that was a maybe to me. So um, I, you know, we did the album, we recorded the album. Um, and then I uh, got some video put together of little clips and sent that to him. And then just seeing and hearing it, oh, wow, that like does work, huh? Interesting. And uh, getting, I, and I also invested in promotional photos with that group. I paid for that. Um, and again, it was an, a, a, an investment up front and uh, I knew it would pay off. I had full confidence. And now um, it looks like we're gonna be on another touring roster for the 23-24 season 
And um, that's not my group. It's another group that I hired to play with me. And then I got arrangements done for trumpet and string quartet. And hopefully before the next tour that we do, I'll probably try to get another commission in there. Um, and audiences loved it. They loved seeing I would bring seven different trumpets on stage and play a variety yeah. of different tunes. And but it took me it took me years to get to get that. I mean, it was supposed to happen a couple seasons ago and then COVID canceled it. And then yeah. we had to wait and reschedule. And so it was it was a long time for me to work and get that collaboration to get hired. I mean, it was the same with Sarah Brass. When we started in 2014, we didn't have any gigs. We had to start. And I, um, the initial group, you know, I, I put them on the path of how I had um, approached my solo career, which, which is like, let's just make promotional video right away. It won't be our best because we're new together, but it doesn't matter. We all live in a different state. Let's get something together so we can sell it to presenters. And then we'll continue to get better and then replace that material as we improve as a group together. And that's, that was my approach from the beginning. And, uh, and it, and it, and it works. I mean, eight years later, we're, um, we're just doing really well and the group's functioning better and better each year and get and improving each year. And it's just, yeah, I've learned so much through running that group too, as, um, a leader and, uh, how to motivate a group and, and not letting things, um, any kind of, uh, downward things just completely end the group. I was always like, this yeah. group is, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And we'll find the right people eventually. And it's, it's paid off. Gosh, there are so many things you just said that I feel like we could have, I mean, if you would give it to me, I'm, we, we should stop soon, but I feel like I could talk to you for like hours, just, picking apart so much of what you just said about like we're going to start and it's not going to be the best but that's okay we will get better if we just keep trying like the the willingness to allow it to not be the best it could ever be even though your standards are high because you understand that it's a new thing like that that I think that's so important I think it's it's like massively un misunderstood that like you're not going to be the best at anything when you first start doing it, but that shouldn't stop you from doing it because if you keep going five years from now, no one's going to remember those first efforts and you're going to be killing. Um, I think that's so important. Uh, and there's, there's many things the way I would like to at least end this interview. And then hopefully maybe someday down the road, we can do this again because I have many more questions, but you mentioned something about we always want more and it's human nature to always want more. And I'm sure there are gigs like I, I see some gigs that you have or some opportunities or performances that you have done. And I'm like, oh, that would be pretty amazing to be able to do. I wish I had that, but I'm like, but I got some pretty neat things that I'm doing too. So that's like, okay. You know, um, what's your perspective on maybe seeing other people that are in sort of the next echelon, if you want to call it that, or have opportunities, access to opportunities that you are hoping you will have access to someday, but you don't have them necessarily right now. Um, like, how do you manage that, you know, and not just be like, cause I feel like many people could be angry that they don't have those things and then they don't necessarily see what they do have. And so I'm curious if you've wrestled with this in your own life to come up with some perspective that allows you to appreciate the things that you have and continue working towards the things that you uh, hope will happen in the future. I think that, um, if I've caught myself, I think everybody is dealing with this now of being like addicted to the phone and scrolling. And, um, and I think that, uh, limiting that time is super helpful. Um, and also just viewing people. One thing that really helped me through COVID actually was 
um, being able to connect with a lot of different artists around the world who I had never talked to before and hearing their personal stories of how they've overcome struggle and how they've made it in their career, that really gave me a lot of perspective and really like made me feel like we're all a community together and everyone is, is working towards their goals and, we're, and life is so short. It's like, it's, I don't want to spend my time feeling envious of somebody because I, I have a lot and I've worked really hard for that. I'm proud of it. And I think switching that to a supportive mindset of being curious about what other people are doing and what can you learn from that person? If you see something that someone has that you want, instead of feeling like angry about it, be proud of that person and be like, that's really cool. Maybe I should try something. How could I, if I want to do something like that, what can I do? Maybe there's something that I'm wanting to explore, you know? And um, I think just being, looking at it as more of a curious, with a curious mindset and being interested in other people rather than um, scarcity mindset, I think is just, this is a good reminder just to keep reminding yourself. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's, 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 you know, you and me are at an age where we grew up with, um, without cell phones and without social media. I remember in college, it was MySpace. <laughs> oh yeah. And, Tom. Uh, yeah. It was in, and, and in a way I'm grateful for that because like, I can't imagine what young people must feel because I felt a lot of pressure at Curtis, just my three colleagues that were right in front of me. I didn't know who else was out in the world. And I still was like really stressed out because those three <laughs> players were phenomenal. And I was like, oh my gosh. But so, yeah, my advice is to young people is to keep it in perspective, realize that, the, that you have plenty of time to improve and you don't need to share right now if you don't, if you don't want to. You've the, your whole life to share things online and to build your career. And so for young college students, um, if you're not ready to share on social media, don't worry because you have plenty of time. Just practice, be patient, stay motivated and curious. Yeah. I love what you're talking about social media. I've had to do similar things, sort of pull back on how much I'm doing. I don't Mary, this has been amazing. I'm I'm glad that I finally have had the opportunity to, to talk with you a little bit. Obviously, we've connected before, but um I've learned a lot. I really appreciate you giving me uh, your time. If people are interested, if they've really connected with your episode and they would like to get in touch with you, are there various ways that they could send you a message and let you know what they thought? Sure. Uh, you can go to my website, maryelizabethbowden.com, and there's a form there where you can reach me at my email. Great. Yeah. So check that out if you are interested in letting her know what you thought of the episode if you need to get in touch with me you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on facebook and instagram if you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all i would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review on itunes and don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find this episode mary thank you again this has been a real pleasure i'm so glad to have you on the show thank you so much yeah I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. Um, you can check out Brandon's work at epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Bye.